So we gather here to sit in meditation and listen to the Dhamma. The opportunity to hear the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, is a precious and rare opportunity. It is and represents the chance for our sati and panya, our mindfulness and wisdom to grow and develop. It allows the mind to grow stronger and brighter and for the heart to settle into calm. And when one practices while listening to a talk, the mind has a chance to immerse itself deeper into that truth that it knows, into the Dhamma. Especially if the one who speaks, speaks with a quiet mind. And as we listen, we can contemplate and see clearly in ways that perhaps we before have not been able to. In the time of the Buddha, he would frequently praise the miracle of instruction, comparing it to other miracles and saying that of all the miracles that one can witness, the miracle of instruction is the greatest. The Buddha noted that people became entranced with and infatuated with other miraculous feats and psychic powers displayed by practitioners. But that in reality, if one became too interested in such things, one sometimes lost interest in the practice and that all these other miracles were of little benefit to one. Where he's listening to the Dhamma and this miracle of instruction had the ability to lift the heart out of delusion to brighten the mind, to dispel doubt, to increase faith. So we gather and we listen to these teachings on the practice, on giving, on developing wisdom, on the path. If we follow such teachings to the point of realization, specifically stream entry or sotapanna, then one finds that while one's mind still might experience dislike or displeasure, that emotion does not transfer into ill will or concentrated and volitional dislike. A stream enterer, an Aryan of that level, uh, a noble being of that level of realization, may still experience such emotions as liking and disliking, but they will not become drunk on those emotions, will not follow them and not exacerbate them into the more concentrated and toxic emotions of ill will or intense greed. Perhaps they might feel such 
emotions as liking and disliking, but their mindfulness is strong. And as soon as such things arise, they understand in their hearts the drawbacks of anger, its likeness to fire in a way that it burns the heart and they're able to let it go. However, if there is no contemplation, if we have not yet come to that level of realization, then when disliking and liking arise in our hearts, sometimes the mind will follow such things and proliferate. Sometimes dislike will become hatred. Even in such cases, however, as practitioners, we do not follow or act on such negative mind states. We rely on the restraint of sila, of morality, to keep our thoughts and impressions from transferring into actions. And this tool and guardian of sila is a precious possession of us monastics, both monks and novices, and of lay people as well, to remain restrained within the padimoka, within our rule, allows us to establish a firm foundation in the heart. It allows us to encounter liking and disliking, but to not become completely lost in them when such things arise, because we refrain from acting on them, we can simply ask ourselves and use the tool of contemplation to wonder, okay, I feel a sensation of liking something, but is this really me? Can I really lay ownership to this feeling? Similarly, when disliking arises in the heart, we might ask ourselves, is this disliking mine or, or me? And if the mind and heart are in a state of lucid calm or have some degree of quiet, then the heart will quickly understand and let go of such emotion. To teach the quiet mind is easy. Only if the mind has yet to come to a degree of calm and is still restless, will it be difficult to instruct? In such cases, we might ask it these same questions, but it will not yet understand. And for this reason, the quality of a calm mind, of samadhi, is of paramount importance. In order to calm the mind, we seek out seclusion. Pali, we wake. And such seclusion is of several types. The first is kaya we wake, namely seclusion of the body. In the initial stages of practice and later stages as well, we might seek out a secluded area, an empty hut, the root of a tree, an area in the forest where there are less external stimuli impacting the mind and where mindfulness and attention can easily be brought internally 
to our body and mind to look clearly at our internal experience and to grow quiet in such contemplation and meditation. At times, to calm the mind in such quiet circumstances does not take long, perhaps only 30 minutes or an hour. And once the mind has achieved samadhi, it can be said to have entered the next level of vivek or seclusion, that of chitta we wake, or seclusion of the mind. In such a state, the five samadhi factors will grow until they have waxed into factors of true strength. These, these factors of vitaka vichara, or directed thought and evaluation, piti sukha, that is rapture and pleasure, and finally ekagata, or one-pointedness of mind, are all present in a state of strong samadhi and represent this entrance into chittuviwek. Although we in such a state might feel great rapture or pity, it may not have calmed itself into a refined state of upekka or equanimity yet. This is all right. The state of pity and brightness of mind that it represents is, are, are still of great value. And we can achieve such brightness of mind through different means. For example, we might regularly recollect our good deeds, that which we've given. And thinking about the good acts we have done might give rise to this rapture of pity. And in turn, the mind may grow satisfied and calm, even briefly. Such a state of brief, lucid calm is termed kanaka samadhi or momentary concentration. During the day or the meditation, when we bring the mind even briefly to be with its meditation object and bring it to a brief state of calm, this still represents kanaka samadhi and is a wholesome development on the path. Over time, it can strengthen and develop into something much more continuous and dependable. To cultivate such a practice, even in initially brief states of calm, is the path. And although some people might wonder if it's truly leading them anywhere, such doubts do not have to derail one's practice. One can practice with them. Longpur Cha would frequently say that some people don't doubt and others do doubt, but even those that are full of skepticism and doubt, if they continue to practice regularly, still can achieve realization they still can arrive at the goal. Some practitioners simply have characters 
prone to doubt. But this is not an ultimate obstacle to their ability to realize the Dhamma. If they continue to practice and put forth effort, the skeptical doubt may just disappear on its own. Or they might be able to establish enough mindfulness that they're able to see clearly the hindrance of doubt and release it. This can be said with the same with all five of the hindrances, that a sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. All five of these obstacles to the calm mind can be known and released when we develop and put forth effort in the practice. Especially with this practice of Nesachik, or the sitter's practice where we remain awake all night, we have the opportunities to see these hindrances in sharp relief, especially that of sloth and torpor. So if we continue to practice past these hindrances, we see calm come up, rapture or pity arises, and Various strange and novel sensations can grow in the mind. The body might expand, rapture arise, tears might flow. We might feel as if we are floating or as if our body has disappeared altogether. Ironically, this can lead to another stage of doubt when the practitioner wonders what this is, what these sensations mean. They might feel their hands disappearing, the right or the left, or even their entire body disappearing. This is just the quiet of samadhi, the sensations leading up to it that we term rapture or pity. And once the mind has passed these and settled into a state of calm, then that doubt will disappear on its own. So, if we have not yet brought our sati and samadhi, our mindfulness and concentration to the point where it has achieved this calm, then when we contemplate our own bodies and the bodies of others, we will not be able to see them clearly. But if these powers of concentration have been brought to a state of power and strength, then contemplation of the body will yield fruit and quick understanding. This is no fault of our own if we are not yet able to see with such clarity. The mind has been lost in and attached to this form and body for a long time. To see through it is not easy. However, a clear vision of the nature of the body is paramount to an entrance of the mind into emptiness. Doubt disappears, the citta brightens, and we might see things with sharp clarity for a long period. For example, we might see all those walking around us simply as puppets. However, such a state of clear vision 
is bound, as all conditioned things are, to decay and disappear, which can lead to doubt arising again as we ask ourselves what happened to our calm and to our clear vision. Where did it go? This is natural. All these things go and all of them can arise again. We simply must continue to practice and we may expect that those results will come again. However, it can be helpful to have expedient means on the path. For example, listening to a well-practiced teacher or a Kruba Ajahn. To listen to one, such a one teach helps dispel doubt. They may speak about Nibbana, enlightenment, about its desirability, its brightness, and we may grow calm and inspired to practice. This is important. If we put forth effort in the practice, then we may be able to make ourselves into a refuge and we may be able to apply ourselves sincerely to the practices taught by the Kruba Ajans to believe in what they have expounded to us. As our faculties in the practice grow strong, they may grow into the level of the factors of awakening. And these factors of awakening are qualities which will lead us farther and farther along the path. When, for example, the factor of awakening of upekka or equanimity is developed to fullness, then the mind can be ready to see dhamma, to break through to realization. However, such a state of equanimity, upekka, is usually preceded by passing through and developing the factors of awakening of rapture, of faith, of effort. And as we develop these factors on the path, then our practice will gain a momentum of its own. The rapture and faith arising through our practice will allow us to walk meditation, to sit with very little effort as we will be inspired to do so. And this is how the path goes. It's a miraculous thing when such faculties develop on their own and reinforce one another. As the path gains strength and momentum like this, our faith in what the Buddha taught and our teachers told us becomes firm as we see its fruits clearly. And such a faith is not based on blind belief, but on a vision of some fruits of the path for ourselves. Of course, when we've turned our mind to contemplate the body and seen through it into and brought the mind to a state of emptiness, the faith that arises from this level of realization 
is a faith that has been arrived at through deep wisdom and is of profound benefit and extreme stability. It serves as a basis for our practice for the time that follows in our lives. As we contemplate and develop this path, the calm we experience begins to grow more continuous and deepens into upachara or neighborhood concentration. To contemplate the body from such a state is easy as the mind is ready for it. We can see clearly how the body decays and we understand how all things that arise also decay. This vision is a clear seeing into the nature of conditioned reality and represents a world transcending knowledge or lokutara knowledge. Similarly, as we see the ebb and flow, the arising and passing away of thoughts, we have also witnessed an element of world transcending knowledge or lokutara. And such visions usher in no long time into full realization of the Dhamma. However, first we must put forth effort. We must try to give ourselves to this practice sincerely. And we must bring ourselves to walk on the path time and again. Don't sleep too much. We don't eat too much. We use food just to support ourselves on this path and not to fatten ourselves. We attend morning and evening chanting and we depend and look to most of all the food of the heart. We remember that the laity have given a great deal of material requisites to support us in this practice and understanding the value of this, we apply ourselves. We may also motivate ourselves by recollecting death. Even if we are relatively young, 25 or 30 years old, we may think that our lifespan might only reach until the age of 80. And if that's so, how long do we really have left? Can we afford to be careless? If we practice like this, then we have some hope of restraining the mind from becoming lost in the various mental impressions which it inevitably will get caught up into. With such contemplation, we might hope to restrain it somewhat and direct it time and again to the path. Little by little, in this way, we can wear down the, one of the first three fetters, that of Sakaya Ditti, or self-view. 
this factor and fetter of Sakaya Didi leads us to take the impressions which we experience, such as liking and disliking, as a self, to lay ownership of them, and to do the same with the body, with all of nature. We lay claim to this thing and these objects which are just part of nature, and in doing so, we resign ourselves to dukkha, to suffering. So we practice, especially today, on the Uposa today. We have teachers here from various branches and corners of Thailand who have all practiced well and who are here to lead us in this practice. If they can sit and meditate through the night, so can we. And if we are not yet peaceful, at least we can count ourselves as practitioners who have patient endurance and can sit alongside the others. So in the days of Wapapong, we used to practice like this for the sake of developing great patient endurance. Sometimes from 6 p.m. until 11 p.m., Long Por Cha would give a five-hour teaching or force us to sit for a full five hours. And we would do so, sometimes only having drunk a single cup of cocoa, as that's what we had at the time. But if we remained with this practice, we found that the mind on transcending the pain and difficulty achieved a state of calm and quiet. And we could see clearly. And such is the benefit of putting forth effort even when we think it is too much. So tonight, please try and apply yourselves. Put forth effort. We only have one month left until the last day of the Vasa, of the Rains Retreat, as it is August or September 2nd. And this is also the day uh, when we honor uh, the Venerable Upagupta, who is said to be residing in the navel of the sea, protecting and waiting for the Sasana to need his help once again. So recollecting him and his gift to the Sangha, we dedicate ourselves to practice this evening.